Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And Tracy, uh, as you may or may not know, I bet you did, in the 8th century, there was this document written that was kind of important. <laughs> I did not know this. I mean, I, I knew there were important documents, but I didn't know about this specific one. Yeah, so it ended up having a lasting impact on the course of medieval Europe, uh, and even a little beyond that. And this document, which was called the Donation of Constantine, granted a large part of the uh, Roman Empire land and power to Pope Sylvester I and his successors. But that document, and this isn't really a spoiler because this is normally how this document is presented, was a fake. It's You'll usually see it written up as like the, one of the greatest forgeries of history. Uh, so today, the donation of Constantine is recognized as a forgery, and that has been the case for several hundred years. But for centuries, it was actually recognized as a binding document and was used to substantiate claims. Uh, and for starters, if you know your Roman Empire history, that mention that we started off with of it being written in the 8th century may have piqued your curiosity and raised the flags because Constantine the Great ruled in the early 4th century. Uh, so that's the quick intro on the topic we were talking about today, which is the donation of Constantine. We're also going to talk about how it came to be revealed as a forgery and uh, a little bit of the story on the man who who did that uh, that research that proved it out as false. So we don't know the exact date that the faux donation of Constantine was written. We generally think it was composed sometime between 750 and 800. The document is written in two different parts. There's the Confessio and then the Donatio. And the first section details the relationship between the Emperor Constantine and Pope Sylvester I. Then the second lays out the specifics of this donation. So for context, uh, Constantine the Great was the 57th emperor of the Roman Empire. He reigned in various degrees as his power expanded from the year 306 to his death in 337. And I say that because if you look at some of these older ones, you know, he was ruling one part and then his lands expanded and he was considered ruler of other things as well. Uh, that's why it's worded that way. Uh, and his move from Rome to Constantinople, which we're going to discuss a little bit in this episode, catalyzed the rise of the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. And Constantine is known for many, many things, and we're not going through like his biography, but from a religious perspective and what really relates to this episode, the key points are that he legalized all religions in the Roman Empire. Uh, both religions and cults were free to be practiced however anyone pleased. He put an end to Christian persecution, uh, but he didn't declare himself a Christian until fairly late in his life. And Pope Sylvester I, who he allegedly in this document donated all of this land and power to was the 33rd Pope. Uh, we don't know as much about him and his sort of life story, but he served as Pope from uh, 314 to 335. So kind of right in the middle, kind of with a parenthesis of Constantine around it in terms of timeline. According to the Confessio, Sylvester I taught Constantine about the Christian faith. Constantine professed his own faith, he was baptized by Sylvester, and then in doing so, Sylvester cured Constantine of leprosy. It's a dynamic story. 
Um, <laughs> the second section of the donation, after it it uh, sets up this this great story of how Constantine was so moved and cured by Sylvester, uh, lays out the actual transfer of power and land, and it names the Pope as the successor to St. Peter. Uh, basically, the line of popes is considered to be, you know, directly from St. Peter, and that's why he figures so prominently in papal history. Constantine, at this point, was preparing to move to the new capital that he had built, Constantinople, and so he left Rome to the Pope, including control of the imperial palace and the western regions of the empire. Additionally, he granted these seats of authority, you will see these sometimes referred to as sees, of Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem to the Pope, as well as authority over all the churches of the empire. And here is a little excerpt from that. Uh, it says, quote, and we ordain and decree that he shall have the supremacy as well over the four chief seats, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem, as also over all the churches of God in the whole world. And he who for the time being shall be pontiff of that holy Roman church shall be more exalted than and chief over all the priests of the whole world. Yeah, that's not any small potatoes. That's pretty broad. <laughs> It's basically like, you are running the show. Uh, and in the text, it's also inferred that the Pope's power extends to secular matters, including appointing people to positions of power in the territories that he controls, including positions outside of the church as well. So the Pope was also granted the honorary rights that the emperor was entitled to, including wearing the imperial crown and purple garments. Sylvester, the text claims, refused to wear the crown out of humility and devotion to his religious responsibilities. Uh, and that section goes, quote, But he, the most holy pope, did not at all allow that crown of gold to be used over the clerical crown which he wears to the glory of St. Peter. But we placed upon his most holy head, with our own hands, a tiara of gleaming splendor representing the glorious resurrection of our Lord. Constantine, the text explains, felt that as the home of St. Peter, Rome was vital to the church, so he was compelled to move his secular government away so that he didn't infringe on the realm of his, of religion. This entire setup was obviously incredibly beneficial to the church. It gave the institution unprecedented power. And this is maybe my favorite part, uh, <laughs> because it comes up in almost any falsified document that we have talked about on the show. In that classic wrap-up that we always see, the donation swears to its own veracity, and it condemns anyone who would dare question it, as it was totally signed by none other than the emperor himself, and it was put on St. Peter's tomb. So here's absolutely sorry. valid document, you guys. <laughs> so here's the quote from that portion, quote, if anyone, moreover, which we do not believe, prove a scorner or despiser in this matter, he shall be subject and bound over to eternal damnation and shall feel that the holy chiefs of the apostles of God, Peter and Paul, will be opposed to him in the present and in the future life. And being burned in the nethermost hell, he shall perish with the devil and all the impious. Yeah, just casual, like... <laughs> If you disagree with this document, 
your soul is doomed. Uh, yeah, it's a little intense. So the oldest known copy of the Donation of Constantine is a 9th century edition that was in the collection known as the False Decretals. And this collection, which you'll also sometimes seen referred to as the Decretals of Pseudo-Isidore, is an assortment of religious decrees and papers and letters of popes. But it included a number of forged documents. It first appeared at the Council of Soissons in 853, and it became a recognized part of canon law for centuries. As such, the donation of Constantine was included alongside nearly 100 other forged documents, which bolstered the position and power of bishops in the face of potential threats to power. There's also a possibility that the granting of land and power to the church had been part of an oral history and that the creation of an actual written version of it was done to sort of validate this existing idea. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, there's this myth I heard. It would be great for the church. I'm just going to write this up. <laughs> um, and that gave it, you know, somehow extra uh, validity. And a previous episode from our archives, which is hosted by Candace and Jane, actually mentioned the donation of Pepin and its connection to the coronation of Charlemagne. And that donation given by Pepin, or you'll also see it as Pippin III, gave the Pope, at that time, Stephen II, rights to significant portions of central Italy, and it laid the groundwork for the establishment of the Papal States. In exchange, Pope Stephen II recognized the Carolingians as the successors to the Merovingian dynasty, which had been in power up to that point for almost three centuries. And just for clarity, we're using this as sort of a contextual thing, but the donation of Pepin is legitimate. That is not a forgery. That's an actual thing that happened. In just a moment, we'll talk about some of the other possibilities surrounding the creation of the donation of Constantine. But we're going to pause really quickly for a sponsor break before we do that. So it's also possible that the donation of Constantine was created at Pope Stephen II's command as part of his negotiation efforts with Pepin. In fact, establishing a fake history in which the papacy had already been given this power uh, in an effort to make Pepin's donation seem more like a restoration than ceding a lot of land and power. It also might have been created for Charlemagne's coronation as a way to bolster the donation of Pepin and to ensure that the papal power in Italy continued to be recognized. But surprisingly, the donation of Constantine doesn't appear to have been invoked as a means of validating the church's power until sometime later in the 11th century. And it's not as though there had been no challenges or power struggles during that time. So it's a little unclear why no one pointed to the donation for quote-unquote proof. Uh, Rome and Constantinople, as seats of religious and secular power, had been at odds repeatedly in the intervening years. So it would have been really, really handy to produce the donation of Constantine to end some of those conflicts. But finally, Pope Leo IX held it up to support the church's power in 1054. And from that point on, it became a commonly cited example of the church's given authority. We should also note that it's possible that the document was referenced sometime before that. But Leo IX's reference to it is the first one that we definitely know about. And at that point, it became so commonly used as an establishing document and was even cited in canon law and people just accepted it without question for several centuries. There are also paintings depicting the donation. One was painted in 1246. It's part of a series of frescoes in Rome's San Silvestro Chapel at Santi Quattro Coronati Basilica. 
Another was painted almost 300 years later, in 1524, by the School of Raphael. The second piece is part of the Room of Constantine that was part of the four rooms that make up the Stands of Raphael. These rooms are part of an apartment on the second floor of the Pontifical Palace at the Vatican. All of these pieces in the Raphael rooms were painted by Raphael and his students between 1508 and 1524. Uh, that timing is interesting, uh, which we are about to illustrate because it was noted as a forgery before that was painted. <laughs> Uh, and the man credited with revealing the donation of Constantine to be a forgery was a literary critic, philosopher, and humanist Lorenzo Valla. And he was what you might call a rabble rouser or a troublemaker. Uh, and he had a really pretty interesting relationship with the papacy. So to give some context to all of that, we're including a mini biography of him here. Valla was a lawyer's son born in 1407 in Rome. His father worked on the papal court, so while the family was originally from Piacenza in northern Italy, Lorenzo grew up in Rome, where he lived until he was in his early 20s. Valla had hoped to also gain employment in the papal court like his father, but despite his education in Latin, a secretarial job in the church eluded him. So he traveled throughout the country for several years, starting in 1430, primarily in northern Italy. And Lorenzo worked as an educator, teaching rhetoric, but he ended up really making a name for himself as a writer. His first work, On Pleasure, supported the then unpopular notion that a virtuous life could be lived free from pain. He would revise this writing three more times in the next decade and a half. And this was followed up by writings advocating anti-Stoicism and a harsh critique of the revered lawyer Bartolus, who had practiced and taught in the early 14th century. And Bartolus, in Valla's opinion, used Latin terribly. This is a theme that comes up in Valla's work over and over. Uh, Valla's foci of study had been rhetoric, as we mentioned, which he taught, and Latin, and he used this knowledge of both to really break down Bartolus's work. That particular effort didn't make Valla particularly popular among his colleagues at the University of Pavia, where he was teaching at the time. The law faculty in particular was irate at his attack on Bartolus. Valla didn't teach at Pavia for much longer after this criticism went public. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that's referenced in a number of different uh, biographies of him. There's scant specifics in terms of what went down, but it's sort of like, he decided it would be best if he left that place. <laughs> uh, so presumably things were a little uh, friction-laden for a while. But this is how, after another bout of traveling, Lorenzo Valla found work in the court of the King of Naples, Alfonso of Aragon. And in 1440, which is a pivotal year, Alfonso was at war with Pope Eugenius IV. That same year, Valla once again put his knowledge as a Latin scholar into his writing when he wrote his analysis of the donation of Constantine. This was titled, quote, Discourse on the Forgery of the Alleged Donation of Constantine. The Latin that was used in the document, he concluded, was just not indicative of a work written in the 4th century. In one translation, this criticism was translated as, quote, The Latinity of the grant is crude. In other words, the transfer of power of this nature would have been written more elegantly. I so love the phrase, the Latinity of the Grant is crude. 
I, it has a great scansion. It's got a certain musicality. <laughs> I just love it. Uh, sources seem to vary in assessments as to whether Vala was pursuing this analysis and reveal of the forgery as a supportive move for King Alfonso in his conflict with the Pope or whether it was merely an academic interest, as evidenced by his writing about the lawyer Bartolis and writings later on that we'll talk about. He really liked to pick apart people's Latin. Also, as a humanist during the Renaissance, it would have been pretty natural for Lorenzo Valla to just turn a critical eye on the Catholic Church and the sources of its power in general. Uh, this is, after all, a sentiment that was growing in Europe at the time and eventually led to the Protestant Reformation. Valla is not gentle in his criticism. It's apparent in his writing that he feels that he has identified complicity on the part of the papacy we're including a longish excerpt here because we want to give listeners a sense of exactly where this rhetoric is coming from. So in his introduction, he writes, quote, I know that for a long time now, men's ears are waiting to hear the offense with which I charge the Roman pontiffs. It is indeed an enormous one, due either to supine ignorance or to gross avarice, which is the slave of idols, or to pride of empire, of which cruelty is ever the companion. For during some centuries now, either they have not known that the donation of Constantine is spurious and forged, or else they themselves forged it, and their successors, walking in the same way of deceit as their elders, have defended as true what they knew to be false, dishonoring the majesty of the pontificate, dishonoring the memory of ancient pontiffs, dishonoring the Christian religion, confounding everything with murders, disasters, and crimes. They say the city of Rome is theirs. There's the kingdom of Sicily and of Naples, the whole of Italy, the Gauls, the Spains, the Germans, the Britons, indeed the whole West. For all these are contained in the instrument of the donation itself. So all these are yours, Supreme Pontiff? And is your purpose to recover them all? To despoil all kings and princes of the West of their cities or compel them to pay you a yearly tribute? Is that your plan? I, on the contrary, think it fairer to let the princes despoil you of all the empire you hold. For, as I shall show, that donation, whence the Supreme Pontiffs will have their right derived, was unknown equally to Sylvester and to Constantine. In just a moment, we will dive into a few of the points that Vala used in this argument against the donation of Constantine's validity. But first, we are going to have one more quick sponsor break. In addition to the Latin usage errors, there are other giveaways in the donation of Constantine identified by Vala. One of the points that his text on the subject makes is that the coinage in Rome continued, quote, to be struck in Latin for Constantine. Coinage served as a sort of record of leadership, and the coinage did not change to be struck in Sylvester's name at the time that this grant is alleged. Instead, it changed over to that of Constantine's secular successor when he died, indicating that the Pope was never granted the reign and land the donation claims. Additionally, Constantine's reign as emperor, as I mentioned earlier in the show, outlasted Sylvester I's as Pope. Also, there is no historical record of the transfer of power that's described in the donation. It's the only source for this information. And there's historical evidence of Constantine still serving as ruler in the areas that were alleged allegedly granted to the papacy after the document is supposed to have been written. 
Some of the language of the donation text is also out of place historically. For example, the use of the word satraps to refer to Constantine's nobles. Uh, That word wasn't used in Rome until the 700s, so it would not have been part of a record written in the 4th century, as the donation claimed to be. Another point of contention is that there's a whole lot of very specific writing about stuff like what the bishop's robes would look like in contrast to just sweeping generalities that were used to grant land and power. So there was a lot of detail about the robes, but not a lot of details about this gigantic donation of land. This incongruity seems very strange for a document that's giving away parts of an empire. (laughs) Yeah, like they get really hung up on like the fashion part. (laughs) And before anyone writes us, I know it's not all about fashion. It conveyed meaning, but it just seems very funny that it is like, let me tell you about the clothes you're going to get to wear. Also, yeah, you can have all that land over there. That's cool. (laughs) It's a little bit weird. Uh, But while Lorenzo Valla and his breakdown of this this document is generally credited with revealing the donation of Constantine as a forgery, he was not the only and was not even the first person to question its authenticity. Otto III, who became the Holy Roman Emperor at the tail end of the 10th century, declared the donation of Constantine to be a forgery. He refused to acknowledge it. But there doesn't seem to be any documentation that shows exactly why he thought that. Yeah, it could just be that he didn't want the church to have all of that power and he wanted some of it back. Uh, I'm not clear. But uh, it is worth pointing out that that was many hundreds of years before Vala's work. And then just seven years before uh, Valla wrote his his breakdown of it, Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa called out the donation of Constantine as Apocrypha in 1433. And then the Bishop of Chichester, Reginald Peacock, also raised a flag regarding the donation in his writing, the repressor of overmuch blaming the clergy. And so he raised this criticism after Valla's analysis, but he didn't know anything about it when he wrote it. And then finally... The forgery was acknowledged by the church. Over the course of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, an ecclesiastical historian, Cardinal Cesar Baronio, published a 12-volume series, and in it, Baronio admitted that the donation was a fake. In the same writing, he attributes the creation of the forgery to a Greek author, but there were detractors to that assertion pretty much from the moment it was made. Because the document so obviously benefited the church, it's possible that Pope Stephen II, who served as Pope from 752 to 757, may have known about its creation, and that the Roman church may have had a hand in its writing. And it is also even possible that the two parts of the text of the donation were in fact written at different times. So there are so many questions about not only its authenticity, which is acknowledged as not there, but just about the nature of of how it came to be and when it came to be and the possibility that it was not on, on one concise timeline, but in two pieces. So Lorenzo Valla wrote a lot about the papacy and its complacency in maintaining this forgery as a true document. So what happened to him next might at first seem a little contradictory. He went on to become a papal secretary under Pope Nicholas V, but he got himself in a lot of hot water before that ever happened. (laughs) So for starters, he continued to pick apart the writing of many other respected and admired figures, including the philosophers (laughs) 
Hippias <laughs> and Aristotle. And he also wrote of the ways in which he found the work of Roman lawyer and politician Cicero's prose lacking. And those criticisms were not always well received. As you can imagine, when their beloved figures and some random person comes along and yells about how they should be discredited because their grammar is bad, not everyone is really enthusiastic about hearing that. Uh, but he did write a very popular Latin grammar textbook, though, that ended up being used throughout Europe. But the really dicey part of his story is not related to the donation of Constantine at all. It's related to the Apostles' Creed. He didn't believe that that the Twelve Apostles had written the Creed, for anybody unfamiliar, this is uh, the origin story of the Apostles' Creed is that the Holy Spirit guided the Twelve Apostles to create this creed, but of uh, sort of holy ensemble writing. And for his outspoken position on the subject, Valla found himself under investigation by the Inquisition. He was found to be guilty of eight different counts of heresy, which included his criticisms of Aristotle. He probably would have been put to death had King Alonzo not used his power to save him. <laughs> yeah, I like that uh, criticizing Aristotle is a heresy. I, it's just a fascinating thing. Like I said, he was a, a rabble rouser. People did not always enjoy him. Uh, but when Nicholas V came into power, he proved himself as a pope to be sympathetic to humanists, and Valla moved to Rome to work under him in 1448. And he actually remained in that position when Pope Calixtus III came into power in 1455, and Valla remained there until he died at the age of 50 on August 1st, 1457, having proven the donation of Constantine to be a fraud 17 years earlier. Do you also have some listener mail to close out today's episode? I do. We're, um, I know we're in January and, and headed into February here, but I have some holiday cards, uh, that I'm trying to do a roundup on since we did not get all of them before we left the office for the holidays and also, um, just because we get so many and I wanted to thank people for them. Uh, the first one is a thank you from uh, Ms. Brandy. She sent us a beautiful card of her with her adorable uh, dilute orange cat. And it says, wishing you a meowy Christmas. And they are both lovely. Uh, she also has a fabulous cat sweater on in that one. Uh, <laughs> we also got a lovely card from our listener, Rebecca, thanking us for all of our hard work and wishing us Merry Christmas. It is absolutely beautiful, and there's lots of holly and gold on the front of it, so I love it. Uh, and then the other two little pieces as we do this roundup are not holiday-related, but I wanted to make sure to include some others. Uh, this one is from our listener, Peggy. It is a beautiful postcard, which I will describe in a moment. It says, thank you for the podcast. I have listened from the beginning and still enjoy new episodes. I won't recommend a topic. You have a long list already. Instead, please enjoy the seasons at Japan, uh, my current home. You would love Disney Sea. And it's this beautiful lenticular postcard that shows um, this sort of forest image changing with the seasons and it's really quite beautiful and striking so nice. thank you peggy um and then my last one got sent and it's a uh a, a photocopy piece of paper with a note on it it is not signed but it is um a photocopy of what looks like the um, title page of a book called Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years, Women, Cloth, and Society in Early Times. And it says, Dear History People, this is a book I think you'll really enjoy, although it may be more in Holly's interest. It talks about history through the aspects of making string, thread, spinning, weaving, and dyeing. It explains in broad terms why people dressed the way they did due to available materials and explains economic consequences, etc. Thank you for your work on the podcast. And then it says, Sincerely, but it's 
not have a signature. Um, but I wanted to say one, thank you for the recommendation. And two, this is a really smart way to send a book recommendation <laughs> because it includes all of the pertinent information someone would need to find said book. Uh, yeah, photocopying a title page is perfect. So thank you. Thank you. I am going to look that book up because it looks quite interesting. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us at mistinhistory.com and we are available across the spectrum of social media also as Mist in History. If you do go to our webpage, you will find not only every show that has ever existed long before we were the hosts, but also uh, show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together. So we hope you come and visit us at mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.